0: Good morning. It's a joy to be here to start the Holiness Week, and I'm so privileged to be able to start it for you. And I want to begin by uh, just saying publicly how thankful I am that God gave Julie and I two precious children. And they're now adult children. They have their own um, lives. Our son is uh, almost 30, lives in Lexington, and works in a Japanese company there. And our, son, our daughter is a, a worker in the gospel in Tanzania. But when they were small uh, children, no day could be properly brought to an end without the famous bedtime story. It just couldn't happen. No sleep would happen until a story happened. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson... Kind of puts the story in its, or the question of the child in its classic form. Daddy, tell me a story and put me in it. And all the stories that Julie and I told, Julie, how many, how many what? I mean, hundreds, thousands of stories we made up on the spot. Sometimes in half sleep ourselves, in stupid sleep ourselves, the child's eyes wide open. And of course, no night could come to know how to story. We, of course, told stories, and we drew upon any kind of theme we could think of, but somewhere in the story, when things were really dark and gloom, and there was no hope, and, and justice was in the streets, and, and everything evil was prevailing, suddenly the prince Jonathan would emerge, or Princess Bethany would come on the scene, and all would be set right. They would outwit the evil one, they would flash the sword, and all would be well, and everyone lived happily thereafter. And maybe sleep could then ensue. But you know, I think there's something to all of that, because in some ways it reminds us that deeply embedded in all of us are narratives and stories. We frame our lives by stories. We not, don't just end the day with stories. Our whole life is a story, isn't it? And you think about it, when you go to lunch today, you talk to one another, well, what will do you do? You'll, stop and you'll be telling, swapping stories back and forth. People tell, tell a little narrative, people laugh, they come back and tell their story. This is what we do when we're relaxed. what we do when we're at lunch, when we're having an evening together with friends, we tell stories. And part of the amazing about the narrative world that we inhabit is that at some point, at least for those of us in this room, it dawns on us. That in fact God is telling a really great big story, and He's calling us into it. You know, Shakespeare said, "All the world's a stage, and every man a player. Each man has his exits and entrances, but in one man in his town may play many parts." But at some point, we realize that there's more about life than just our exits and entrances on a stage of our own creation. But actually, it's about His entrance, our exoduses in life that really frame it something much bigger than ourselves. Elizabeth Browning said that, that you know, the, the, the every bush is aflame with the fire of God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their faces, their natural faces, unaware. So true, isn't it? You could actually say that in many, one possible definition of conversion, don't hold me to this, this is not overly theological, just kind of a broad picture, one possible definition of conversion is the recognition that God is actually telling the ultimate story, and he's called you to be in it. That's in fact, that's kind of what happens. That's what... That's what happened that we're brought up into a story greater than ourselves. And this Holiness Week is really about that, actually. That's mostly what it's about, what I want us to, to, to grasp this week, what it means to be caught up in something greater than ourselves that calls something deeper than we could possibly engender on our own. Our whole tradition, of course, is framed by stories as well. Uh, John, John Wesley had one on May 24th. 1738. You know the story well. He goes down at about quarter till nine, and it's important, he goes reluctantly. I love that part. God often moves when we're reluctant. He goes down reluctantly to Alder's Gate, and he's there, and he, he hears the, uh, the, the preface to Luther's, uh, Luther's commentary on, on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And it was during that reading of that about that scripture that we're told that uh, Wesley says his heart was strangely warmed I felt I did trust in Christ Christ alone for my salvation and assurance given me that my sins even mine were taken away and I was delivered from the law of sin and death Now there is a there is a story about a man who had by the way a lot of other a lot of prior stories in his life a lot of amazing narratives but it was on that night May 24th 1738 Wesley was, he saw how his narrative was caught up in a greater narrative, right? He was now part of something much bigger than himself, and he was never, never the same after that. In my own case, uh, this happened to me in the summer of 1975, and I was in a Boy Scout troop, and I was, uh, that particular time, we were coming back from hiking the Appalachian Trail, and uh, we had we actually gone through, uh, we, we did on multiple trips, but we had finally finished hiking through the whole of the trail in Georgia. And we were on our way home. It was Sunday, late Sunday afternoon, Sunday late evening, or you know, getting toward evening. We're all exhausted. We want to get back to Atlanta. We stop at the Raven Gap-Nacoochee School. It's a boarding school in, in North Georgia, in Raven County, we're to get, have a meal. We go into this very dingy, and I want to really emphasize, it was dingy. Dingy. It was dingy. It was, you know, you know, I don't know. I like sitting on chairs with backs in them. You know, these are just like wooden stools. We're sitting there, you know, and eating off of plastic trays with plastic forks, the whole thing, dingy. So we're, we're eating our meal on this little, you know, on these plastic trays, sitting on these stools, and I'm just ready to go home. We shovel our food down, and I'm getting up to go when suddenly I find out, to my own heart to be honest with you, that there was a requirement at the end of this meal to hear a devotional from the chaplain. There was never a more reluctant hearer that night than myself. I just wanted to get to the van and go home and sleep. So there I was on the stool, somewhat glassy-eyed, trying to see if I could make it through this person's five-minute devotional, whatever it was. And he opened the Bible and he began to share from the passage about you know, for, uh, for whatever profit I now have, Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I count all things but loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. Count it rubbish. Think of knowing Him. mean, found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes to the law but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when he said that, I don't know what happened. I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel. I, just, that, I, I must have heard that text a thousand times, but at that moment on that night, I heard the gospel. And I, it was amazing. I mean, Luther, Martin Luther had his tower experience in 1510, you know. That's pretty exciting. I had a tower experience. Luther had his Aldersgate experience, you know, in a prayer hall. Mine is a boarding school cafeteria experience. But it happened to me. God touched my life. Never been the same since. But see, stories like that frame my, that frames my life. What happened to me in a boarding school cafeteria one night when I heard the gospel? God touched my life. You know, some stories we tell in our lives are logically prior to other stories. So, for example, you're... Uh, you know, your, ch- your story of your children, obviously, is a story that comes after the t- story of your wedding, or this, your college stories are prior to your seminary stories, or whatever. We all have stories, and they all kind of form networks, and our Christian stories are also like this, because Wesley has another story, which is really important to remember, because May 24th, of course, was the Aldersgate story. Everyone should have that. Also, Wesley also goes uh, the following December, a few months later in December, bringing in the year 1739, uh, John and Charles, about 60 others, are down at another place called Fetter's Lane. And they're in Fetter's Lane as they are uh, meeting together. They are meeting, and something happens about 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, that's amazing that things happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and here they were praying in the night. It was one of these prayer vigils We pray in the new year. And suddenly, the the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They are struck with the power and awe of God. We're told that they they are absolutely uh, amazed by this. They, They fall back in awe. They kind of regain their composure, and then they just cry out, We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. And it was a very powerful experience for, for John Wesley and for those there. They were filled with the Spirit. He had a, a sanctifying experience that night that reoriented his heart in a very, very profound way. What, we, what was happening theologically in this was that Wesley was moving from justification to sanctification. You know, the Alders Gate the Fedders Lane is not just a story of experiences. It's a story of... Theology, actually, a story of God's story, which we frame in theological ways, but in fact, is, is we're being born up on what God is bringing us into. And basically, the point being that salvation is the work of the triune God. It's not enough simply to have a May 24th story in your life. It's not enough to have an altar. We all have ought to have an altar's gate experience in our life, though it'll be look a thousand different ways, but it's something like that that you hold on to we also need to have a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in my case, that happened to me in uh, 1977, the fall of 77, some two years after. Wesley was like, what, three, four months? Uh, for me, it was t- took several years. I'm slow, but you know, I started a cafeteria, a boarding room cafeteria, think about it. Um, but I was uh, in college at that point, 1977, and I had been elected the, the, the president of my class. And so I was given a special room, my own room, and all that, so that was nice. And so I was had gotten to know these five guys. It's not the five guys of the hamburger chain. Yeah. Uh, but they were five guys. We did, we all liked eating hamburgers, but we didn't have that in those days. These five guys were really good friends of mine, and we and they began to, they they all had a very powerful encounter with the Lord. And they were telling me, you know, you you know, I, I'm a Christian. I've, I've been saved. There's no question I've been saved back in uh, 1975. But they were saying, you know, you've, you need to have your whole life totally dedicated to the Lord and turned over to the Lord. And they use different ways of describing it. Don't you want us to pray for you to be completely sanctified unto the Lord? I was at a small two-year college at that time at Young Harris College in Georgia. So I said, I want whatever God asked for me. You know, uh, bring it on. So they gathered around me. They laid hands on me. There was five guys, and there I was, kneeling down. They prayed over me, and absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> I know you're waiting to expect, you know, that the fire would fall in. Nothing happened. Uh, it, the prayer was prayed in earnest. I, I prayed in earnest. As earnest, I knew how, but nothing happened. So I came home that night and as I said, I had that room by myself, and so I just, I just began to pray, and I was just asking Lord, Lord, you know, I was expecting something to happen. Uh, nothing happened. I want to be wholly yours, but something happened that night in my room by myself, and the Holy Spirit came upon me, and my heart was changed. I, I had a reoriented heart. I can't, I can't explain it. Now, it's a very dangerous thing when you're telling stories like this, to tell your story and you're merely thinking, well, I need to replicate that story. Uh, you may have heard about the guy who, uh, who was running from God and he, he, as he ran from God, he literally physically running from God, he fell into a well. And As he fell down, there was no hope for him. And as he cast down into the well, he said, Lord, if you will save me, I'll serve you and be an evangelist for the gospel for the rest of my life. And he grabbed on some roots and he managed to come out of the well and he made it good. He became an evangelist. He went all over the world as an evangelist, but he only had one method of evangelism. He pushed people into wells. <laughs> I don't want to push you into wells, in my well, because it's actually, if you look at even the New Testament, the way this whole thing unfolds is very different. So we, we argue a lot about, you know, is entire sanctification, is it an event? Is it a process? Is sanctification a process? Is this an event? Does this happen logically prior to this happen? And we, we think that baptism, water baptism, should precede spirit baptism. In the New Testament, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Look at Cornelius. The church is oftentimes trying to figure out because God sometimes gets ahead of us, doesn't he? So... I don't want to push you in any wells, I just want you to recognize that salvation is the work of the triune God, and it's not enough simply to trust Christ, and not also yield yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit, and that has to happen in ways that only you can understand, between you and the Lord, I don't know, but we have to find a way as a community to recognize it's not enough to simply say... You know, I'm trusting in Christ and then I'm going to kind of work myself into salvation, into a holy life. It doesn't work that way. Salvation is the work of God in your life. And so we have to yield ourselves to His work in our life. I think somehow the idea of this eternal struggle we have with sin as an ongoing reality where we're always fighting it is actually Zoroastrianism, it's not Christian. The Christian ideal, the Christian vision is that we are actually transformed by the power of the gospel. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent, to change us. Again, as I said the other day, it doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. It means that our heart is reoriented and sin becomes our mortal enemy, not our secret lover. And that's where God calls. And now the other thing I learned, which I think in some ways is part of the way, at least for me, help resolve the event and process conversation. I had a definite event in September of 1977 where God came came down to His Holy Spirit and changed my heart. But I also learned, as I think all of us know, that you could be justified on a deserted island, but you can't be sanctified on one. You can be justified all alone in your room, but you can only be sanctified finally in community. Not only because we need each other in this journey, but because God is building us into His church. That involves transformation that happens in community. It also is because, invariably, the person that drives you nuts, I know you don't have those people in your life, but you know, those people that drive you nuts, that, guess what? They're God's agent of sanctification for you. Oh, how God turns up in strange places with strange faces. You thought you were coming to Esther's Chapel, and you sat down looking at it. Oh, my goodness, did he have to sit there? That's God's instrument of sanctification for you. And that's what this text uh, really is about in our, in our passage before us, because here Paul is trying to help us to see we had to lift ourselves out of our petty narratives. Oh, I'm of Paulos. I'm of Cephas. See, that's the, narr- that's the world we all live in. I mean, the church of Corinth, guess what? It sounds a lot like our church today. Full of division, full of animosity, full of mutual positions that fight each other, and on and on and on and on. It looks like Corinth to me. Okay, Paul doesn't go into despair. He just reminds people of the greater narrative. Uh, Yeah, I planted. Apollos watered, but God made it grow. God's the farmer, not us. We're not the farmers. He's ultimately the farmer that makes it grow. We work, I guess we are the farmers. God's God's God. (laughs) He makes things grow. We can do all the work we want to, but He makes things grow. I, I grew up in the city, I don't know anything about farming. Then happily he moves on to God's building. Okay, I get that. All right, you know. Okay, Apollos is the plumber. Paul is the bricklayer. I get that. You know, Cephas is the roof. You know, puts the roof on. But God's the one's the architect. He raises the house. And notice how it says here, we are God's fellow workers. This is the great Wesleyan theme of collaboration. You know, it, it, It's not simply monergistic where you know we sit back and have these moments of surrender at the altar or wherever we are, and God does it all in our lives. God comes down and whack. It's not that way. I mean, God does come down and whack, but it's it, never just that. It's also synergistic. Uh, God, we are God's, he calls us to participate in this redemptive work, not only in the world, but in our own lives. We're called to actually make new decisions. We're called to actually struggle through things that before were very difficult for us. All of this is part of the narrative that we're building. He's not just simply saying, acknowledge my narrative. He's, I'm telling a story, and I want to put you in it. See, this is the whole point that Paul's unfolding here. Okay, God's building. And then he says, as an expert foundation, he did this work, but then the great verse, verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation upon which all that we do is built. Isn't that wonderful? And then he, he gradually, realized, as the whole text unfolds, we think it was just about a field. By the way, that word's only used at one time in the whole New Testament. It's an amazing word. Then he goes to this building, not just a building, but God's building something integrated that's, that's living. He then, re, then he reveals, as the text goes on, it's not simply any building or a building analogy, which would be in itself beautiful, but in verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? He actually says it's not just any building, God's building a temple, And it's not even the word, the word is naos here, it's not heron, it's not the word for like all the temple precincts and all that, but it is the word for the holy of holies, the place of God's dwelling. That's God's, he's kind of revealing his story. What he's saying is, this is the story that I'm unfolding in the world, I'm building a glorious temple. By the way, just so you'll know, this is not, as we often cite it, you know, uh, you are, uh, you know, you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, and this is like, you know, you shouldn't go do destructive things in your lives. I, I'm sure that's true. But that's not what this text is about. You, plural. You, yourselves, you, plural, are God's temple. And God dwells in you, plural. So it dawned on me that somehow they're being filled with the spirit and being sanctified is not simply, it is enough for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because now I'm being linked to all of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because God is doing something with all of us and through all of us that no one of us can ever do. Because holiness is not just about eradicating sins. Holiness is about something much greater. It's about being a part of God's work. And of course, sins must be eradicated there's a greater plan involved, a greater fruitful plan involved that calls us to participate in his unfolding plan in the whole world. So God, there's only one temple, it's the church, and there are many outposts of that temple, and we are all part of various outposts, but it's all part of one temple that God is building in the world. This is what Paul unfolds for us in this amazing text. So finally, I realize it's not just about us doing righteous things and stopping doing wicked things, though it's never less than that, it's about us participating in an amazing story of God's work. So you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. As a community, we must be, and you as individuals must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You may need a fetter's lane in your life, but you also need to dwell in this community And we as a community desperately need holiness. We desperately need God to lift us as a community to a deeper plane of holiness. Now, even if you have, and I want to close an illustration here. Even if you have, um, this is the first time that I've ever done a show and tell in chapel. So please, um, okay, uh, you've been You've been sanctified. This is you, and you've asked God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm hopefully not mess up the carpet here, but I'm gonna fill you with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Ephesians five eighteen. Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's it. Right. So we're filling you with the Holy Spirit here, and there you are. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. Any doubt? to be careful! It is really full. <laughs> okay, so now you are—you can say with with John Wesley at Fetter's Lane, "Hallelujah, God has filled me with the Holy Spirit." You couldn't get any fuller. Have you had those moments in your life? I hope you have. I've had moments where I'm so full of the Spirit it's coming in my ears. <laughs> All right, then you get into community and you begin to work in community, and you begin to work—you know—with your in your life and. Uh, the Holy, the, the Holy Spirit comes along with you. He has these long arms are reaching into your life. So he begins to work on you and he plucks out this out of your life. Now you knew that was there. That had to go. And so you, you said, you know, praise the Lord. Uh, this was an issue I had. It's now gone. And I don't want it. I hate it. It's gone. Good for you. But then he starts probing a little deeper, and uh, he grabs a hold of this thing here. It's hard to get to. (laughs) Um, It's really hard to get to. And eventually, it's very painful, but he gets it out. (laughs) And this, you didn't want to admit that even, even you didn't know this was in here when you saw it, it, was really ugly. And you realized that God had a deeper agenda than you had. You thought he was just making you happy. He's going to make you miserable at times. actually goes back again. Oh, wow, where did that come from? Oh, yeah. There's that, too. You know, this, oh, yeah, you, you have a bitterness. There's a bitterness there that you just don't want to deal with. We got it. Yeah, right. That's right. That sin has got to go. Okay, all this has happened, and now look at the uh, look where the Holy Spirit is now. Okay, let's get refilled. Let's get some more filling. All right, be ye fill the Holy Spirit. See, in Ephesians says that it's it's ongoing process. You get filled, and you keep getting filled. Don't think just because you had a Fetters Lane is like a bucket list you tick off. Uh, Okay, I've been there, I've done that. Our tradition can be that way against us. The point is, you need to be filled and the more God works in your life, the more he fills us. He keeps on filling us until eventually we see him face to face and we become like him because we'll see him as he is. That's holiness. That's where we're headed. It's a journey in community. The church is not simply the aggregate of all the justified individuals that happen to come together. The church is the community of God's people of holiness. And I just earnestly pray that we as the people of God that call ourselves as Barians would take it as a holy calling that we might be a truly holy people. And you may need to come to the altar during the prayer time. This may be your time to come forward and say, kneel at this altar and say, Lord, fill me anew. I may have already had a Fetters Lane experience, but fill me anew. Lord, redirect my heart. Lord, I, I want to invite you to, to get this out of my life. These things that are keeping me from being wholly yours. You know, when I came to Asbury as the president in 2009, I've been walking with the Lord as best I knew how, you know, like many of you. And suddenly when I came here, I realized pretty quickly, I did not have the spiritual life and heart and mind that I needed to serve as your president. And amazingly, I wouldn't have ever realized that unless I had come here. And the Lord was so gracious to my wife and I. He brought us into some wonderful new dimensions in our walk with the Lord. And looking back on it now, I realize unless the Lord had kept working on me, I couldn't go to the next place He had for me. And so some of you are about to step into the next phase of your life, and what you'll find is you're not ready for it spiritually. There's, things, there's more things need to come out and more spirit has to come in. And I'm sure if I'm back here two years from now, I'll, I'll say, wow, it's still happening again. This is part of the process. But I just want, my heart says, I want to be holy His. I want to be totally directed toward perfect love. Is that your prayer this morning? If so, let us be a holy people and let God know He's called us to be a holy people. This altar is always open. Our prayer teams are always here. Please come as God may lead you and ask God to make us holy. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the living God. I thank you, Lord, that you are telling a grand story and you are putting us in it. Lord, put us in your story anew this morning. Help us to know that You are the Holy One. And may we be holy because we have caught a greater glimpse of Your world and Your work. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.